This is Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Douglas Brinkley. Episode 12 starts after this. Why did you write a profile on Evil Knievel? Evil Knievel, um, I actually have to give Graydon Carter. So Graydon Carter, the editor at Vanity Fair, uh, invited me to lunch and said, I want you to make a, a list of 10 people to profile. So anybody listening to us can make their, li- their list. And I did. And at the number 10 was Evil Knievel, who I saw once jump at King's Canyon when I was a kid over at an amusement park um, in, in uh, near Cincinnati. And he, he, I couldn't believe that he was still alive. Like, I was just vaguely, you know, once in a while you get somebody like, wow, Evil Knievel, um, Bob Knievel, what, what has happened to him? What has happened to the daredevil in winter? And so it was on my list, and that's the one Graydon gravitated towards. I was trying to get a bigger profile with somebody, you know, other people, but he thought that was a good idea. So I found myself going down to Florida and... Uh, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. He was, uh, and I went and hung out with them and spent time and wrote the profile of him. He was a um, piece of work. Um, you know, the only thing I'll tell you, Brian, is that he grew up in Butte, Montana, and his early money he made as a kid was they had a live cougar in Montana in a pit, and they would take a bicycle and he'd ride over the cougar and kids would give him money. And then he went out and started, it. you know, once you do a stunt like that, then if people want him more, we'll do it further. And and, and he got that, started with uh, motorcycles and became a great motorcyclist and then started making money as a um, daredevil. And particularly, uh, Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas had him do this extraordinary, unbelievable jump over the fountains and this was a day without protective helmets and equipment, and he, like, broke every bone in his body. I mean, he was body he was shattered, and yet he came back, and he kept doing these stunts and stunts and stunts. So at my age, again, when I grew up, Evil Knievel was a pretty well-known sports figure. He kind of created extreme sports. Mentioning Muhammad Ali is going to be a Ken Burns Ken's not going to do evil Knievel, <laughs> but he, he's seen as too much of a um, off figure or whatever. But Knievel in his day was attracting massive sports audiences on ABC. And when I saw him, he was born again Christian, um, living with um, his wife, who was younger than him, um, very nice person. And um, you know, he was eating a, a lollipop, like a morphine lollipop that looked like um, something you'd get as uh, um, sugar candy or whatever, you know, type of thing. And he broke, I'm not exaggerating, he like broke every bone in his body, he had liver transplant. It was, and yet the spirit was there, and it was a very Wolverine-like old pioneer spirit that you don't see anymore he came he was like that part of butte up there where the winters and the mining and the he was like uh you wanted to see what real western like gold rush in the yukon or something's like he 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 was a remnant from all of that 
uh, living now in Florida. And I, the one thing that I remember the most is at one point he said, I want to show you something. And he went over in his bedroom and he pulled open his drawer and he opened up an envelope and it was $100,000 of traveler's checks. And he said, every man needs $100,000. You can always survive if you can leave with $100,000. And then his hero is Harry Truman. And he hated Hollywood and despised actors. Uh, he was very conservative, born-again Christian, but really, because he, he said, I like the people that do stuff. And, you know, but it was then the humor was Evo Knievel was telling me, these kids today, they call it jumping. You know, the, my day, we didn't have these kind of helmets, fancy thing. My elbows weren't protected like, uh, you know. And it was just like well, talking to somebody out of a, um, you know, a distant past. And, and he passed away not that long after it. 207? Yeah, and I, I was kind to him in my writing. I didn't, there were a lot of opportunities not to be, but in the end, here's a guy who's regularly visiting the doctor, all these broken bones, pain medicine, praying to God. On um, he, he joined an evangelical church, and, uh, and you know, he just... <laughs> After all the people we've been talking about, the culture people, uh, I don't know that this means anything. Dylan, um, Bob Dylan from Hibbing, Minnesota... Johnny Depp from Owensboro, Kentucky. Hunter Thompson from Louisville, Kentucky. Kerouac from Lowell, Massachusetts. Chuck Berry from St. Louis. And Knievel from Brute, Montana. Does it say anything? Any, yeah, any I like, message? I like, it's a, it, it might be um, that I wasn't part of a New York um, kind of the intelligentsia. I was out there in public schools in America eating at 7-Elevens and, you know, um, land-grant universities. Those all were figures that were very popular in America, but probably weren't, aren't given the respect by a critical community, perhaps as much as, as they could. Um, um, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, those are just some of the cultural people I've um, written about. You know, there, there are a lot of people I like. I just didn't get that opportunity. Either I didn't get an assignment to write about them or, you know, if I wouldn't have had the connection for Bob Dylan if I didn't first get to do the profile of Rolling Stone. So as much as I'd like to do an Oprah Winfrey profile, I'm not being asked to do the Oprah Winfrey profile, so I can't, you know, talk about But she has an amazing career, and some days Oprah Winfrey's biography will be very important. I mean, some I, I don't know what she's done, but she did a lot, and um, in the sense of, of um, her empowerment of women and it has just been extraordinary in her career and as a businesswoman also I would love to go do a profile of her but you know I, there are a lot of she has her own magazine she's got a Vanity Fair if they did get to do her they would probably give it to somebody else besides me so you know you, I, you have to take and I've written a lot of political so we're talking about those people, but I've you know done cover stories of um, Joe Biden and and Barack Obama, and uh, I've done you know the Reagan diaries and Nixon. I did a major Vanity Fair story on Gerald Ford. What about Vanity Fair? Let me ask you that: Is um, <clears throat> uh, Greg and Carter? How did you get the assignment? 
to a be great, a contributing editor? Yeah, they just, I was writing for a lot of places. I did some pieces, cover pieces for the Atlantic Monthly, as it was called then, the Atlantic of today. And um, Braden noticed that, and a guy named David Friend, a creative editor, um, they wanted to bring me to Vanity Fair, uh, which is unique because I'm an academic historian. Um, there's no other academic historian working on the on the, on the Vanity Fairs, um, meaning an actual professor. And they brought me in, and I did um, I did all sorts of pieces. I did Clarence Jones, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s lawyer, and probably my most successful story. I did a piece about Ray Nagin, the mayor of New Orleans for Vanity Fair, that really led to Nagin going to jail in many ways. I was on the, the hunt of that with them. Um, I, I premiered... Why? Why, why did... Um, his, uh, his cronyism and taking money, giving government contracts to people who were his friends so he can get a, a payoff, just old-fashioned corruption. Uh, and I got put on it. The feds were down there investigating him, and I kept hearing the shop talk going on that he was doing this while Katrina was going on. Is he still in prison? He is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm quite <clears throat> proud of uh, it. was a, a bit of my um, ability to, during I wrote the book, The Great Gedeluge on Katrina, like I sort of hone in on, on him a little bit. Um, and, but, you know, so they would ask me to do different things. Uh, I can't even, I'm sure I'm f forgetting a lot of the different profiles right now, but less so now. Um, Radika Jones is the editor. Uh, Hitchens and Graydon are gone from there. And, um, you know, I get along great with Radika Jones. I'm just not getting the big assignments um, like uh, I used to. I want to take you through a, <clears throat> this has nothing to do with anything you've written about, but it just has been interesting to me watching this process a couple of days ago a man died of a heart attack by the name of Earl Simmons better known in the rap world, the hip hop world as DMX are you familiar with that? I am but not, not any more than you are I read the obituaries and know one of his songs tremendous coverage on his yeah. obituary he died of a heart attack at age 50 but I, I didn't know anything about him, so I looked him up. And I just find it interesting, and I want your comment on this. I looked it up. The best profile is in, in um, and actually I find it all the time, in Wikipedia. The newspapers leave out stuff all the time. But I ran across a couple of things that I just wanted to ask you about, uh, because this seems to be happening more and more. And they're idolized. Uh, they're given an enormous amount of coverage. Start with, DMX was a Christian, it says in Wikipedia. He read the Bible every day. And then as you read down, Relationships and Children, it says DMX was the father of 15 children yes. from nine different women. And if you keep reading, a little bit farther it says DMX was in jail 30 times. Jail 30 times, nine different women bore him 15 different children, and he's being idolized. That has happened more and more in recent years. I ask you why. why and why do they sometimes ignore these facts about them and the young people idolize them as being 
something special? Well, it's a fair question. I mean, I don't, it's, I just think a lot of it's generational. I do agree we were talking earlier that the, I get worried if I hear my son listening to lyrics that are, uh, have curse words in it because we have a curse-free house, so I'm cognizant of that. I think people just like the music and the, the beat, and they're not reading the personal life as much. They're just gravitating to the sounds. I once went to Israel um, and then got to go into the West Bank. I went on a thing with Jimmy Carter, and then we met with Simone Perez, but went into this West Bank, and these Palestinian kids listening to American hip-hop music, I didn't realize it had that. They're seeing it as we're oppressed, and this is liberation music. Um, and it just is a phenomenon around the world. I mean, these um, hip-hop artists are, you know, but the question is, do you have longevity? Um, can you can they get out of a spiral? I mean, they're, you, it's, fame is really lethal in this country. You know, you get famous and you get people throwing yourself at you. I fear for these young sports NBA players, 22 and, you know, go out, out on the, the nightclub scene. What could go wrong? You know, you're a target. You're a multimillionaire uh, person. But I, it's amazing in your point, a lot of the misogyny and hatred that sometimes appears in these um, types of artists sometimes gets covered up because people don't want to, they get a pass. If they, a lot of times because they're making money for somebody and that they're popular, there's whatever reason they're this country, capitalism, there's a market, and if they can make money, people will, will print it, publish it. But we're criticized for being misogynists and racist and <clears throat> white supremacy and on and on, go down these lists. <clears throat> and here you have all these young people that admire DMX. I don't know anything about him. I don't want to be negative about him. The man's dead. But it just, I just don't uh, know anything anything about him except that that he he died and was a rapper. Um, but I know he has legions of fans that people that his lyrics have spoken to, and usually that happens, Brian, when he's saying something that speaks to their lives, their conditions, something there he's touching on that they're feeling. Uh, and it might just be it's our language. It's more closer to what's really going on in the street. Uh, and it, it might be part. And, you know, they're in the African-American community. There used to be a tradition called trading 12s. And the whole point of trading 12s, um, people like Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray would write about this, um, was using as ugly and dirty as language as you could to put the other person down. So it would be like a training 12, like, your mama's so low, she blah, 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 well, your daddy, blah, you know, and you go back and forth on the training 12s. Um, and I think that that's um, part of it, that, you know, that you're, you're talking, um, you know, you're, you're trying to out-rap and out-outrage the last person. You're trying to have the last word. So in many ways, they see it as a kind of a game. But it's also just has fans. It's a musical form. I mean, I've mentioned to you, I'm a jazz person. I'm not a um, 
uh, rapper or hip hop. So I know, know really honestly know nothing about him except I noticed that the attention his death got like you did. And that's about it. Forget the rap and all that, but what does it say to you that some person has 15 children by nine different women and is only married to one? Um, it's a phenomena of broken families, right? I mean, but I mean, you know the statistics that 70% of the African American community have children by single parents, and 42 of the nation at large, 42% of the nation's children are born to single parents. I didn't realize it was that high. I mean, what I would have guessed like 30%. Um, yeah, it's problematic. The breakdown of the family structure, and you have to work to make a family work. I mean, it's a hard work, and people working minimum wage jobs, living a kind of marginal life, trying to make things meet, maybe um, getting having children too early, and it becomes a, a survival um, prospect. And what are the answers to that? I mean, education is a big one. How do you get, how can we get, do better in these uh, underschooled communities? Um, and how do we get, you know, pay teachers more, find ways to make school more enticing? Um, but yeah, we're losing a lot of people in that way. Um, uh, the, the, I feel it does take two parents to raise a kid. I know there are a lot of great single people, but it's tough out there raising kids. It's you, The ideal would be to have a, a mother and father, but a lot of single women and men are raising children on their own. But um, yeah, he's obviously, I think Bob Marley in Jamaica is like that. I mean, I, I, you know, there are so many children that are part of it. And uh, part of it is that there are a lot of these um, Singers are become they're superstars. People want to be with them. I don't. I have a, a feeling that you can that kind of fame draws all sorts of people and conflict into your life. Douglas Brinkley is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching Douglas Brinkley in the video library at cspan.org.